0: Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. The intersection of ideas can be an interesting place. Today's guest, Nick Leith, created Green Angel Syndicate to bring the investing power of angels to fund companies that could contribute to benefiting the planet. We talk about how profit and impact no longer conflict, the challenges of finding the right companies, and drawing on Nick's background, the use of language in this area. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at But Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Nick Leith, who is founder and president of Green Angels Circuit. Welcome to the podcast,
1: Nick. Thank you, Brian.
0: As usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you tell us how you became involved in venture capital and
1: angel investing? Yes, yes, I'd I'd, I'd be delighted to. The things that you you need to be aware of uh, in in understanding a lot of what uh, I'm going to say in the course of this podcast. Firstly, that my my degree is in English. uh, And the first 15 years of my working life were in London advertising, working on mainstream mass market consumer brands, the consumption of which I'm now doing so much to try and suppress. Uh, But the importance of that is the background uh, in communications that that gave me, and then the grounding in marketing and sales, and and, um, those are equally important. The significance of sales in that context was that actually my job in advertising was very much the salesman. I, I was what gets called the account exec, who is the person who goes out and sells the ads to the clients. And, and that was um, increasingly my role in my advertising life was to sell the services of the ad agency to to existing and, and potential clients. So the, the next stage was of my working life was to actually run a, my own marketing and sales consultancy, where I really used my marketing and sales. Uh, training and expertise. But that uh, then led to the next bits that were so important uh, in terms of uh, what you're going to hear me talking about, which was, was um, at the turn of the millennium, uh, the foundation of a, a new applied research institute, which specialised in resource use and recycling. And that sounds like an odd transition, but the reason for the transition was a marketing job that I got for the city of Dundee to uh, advise them on how to make more of their commitment to recycling specifically. And I advised them that doing being much more powerful than saying uh, what they should do is set up, what I said to them at the time, was the world's first recycling university. I made the point to them that there was a whole communications issue around recycling that was and resource use that was being blocked in those years by sustainable development and sustainable development was the term given to the main thrust uh, relating to all of the things that people were doing for environmental improvement and no one understood it and it was at this point that my communications I, I made the point no one understands sustainable development they do not know what recycling is so set up something that demonstrates what you do actually goes out and does it but uses language to explain it that the man and woman in the street can understand and and that then turned into something called international resources and recycling institute it was funded uh, initially by um, SEPA, the scottish environment protection agency uh, and the the two universities in Dundee both came into it, uh, bringing with them uh, applied research capability. It, it limped along. It was funded to a small extent by EU project money, but 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 come the transition from sustainable development to climate change caused by Al Gore uh, and um, Lord Stern with the Stern Report in 2006-7, where suddenly the world woke up. To climate change as a theme the wind really caught the sails of irri as it was called and it got asked into all sorts of different european projects and started to become well funded by european money and it took me over i became chief exa- I, I became managing director of that for full, full time and i closed down my consultancy uh, and that was a, a, a fascinating experience for me. I learned an enormous amount about the energy sector, about the water sector. All of the resource use projects were in these different sectors, energy, water, uh, there was a lot in transport, uh, there was a lot in waste and recycling, and it was a very steep learning curve for me doing something that I'd never done before in running an, an institute. But it also led to deep frustrations, as I saw the innovations that were being put through the research going to waste because nobody in these transnational partnerships knew how to commercialize them. But I did. I came from a commercial background, dread in tooth and claw, and I knew exactly how to uh, commercialize them. And so in 2013, as an experiment, I set up what I knew was needed to help commercialize these innovations which was an angel investment syndicate. Uh, And that was the birth of Green Angel Syndicate. And that was how I got involved. I thought, I know how how entrepreneurial startup activity works. And I'm just going to go and do it myself. So I I did that as an experiment, which I was, um, when I was moonlighting, Still running the institute, Uh, and I then realized that actually that was a much more effective way forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, So at the time, um,
0: did the syndicate just fund things from the institute, or was it just okay, there's a capital needed in this area, and let's um, just fund anything?
1: No, it, it specialized in investments in the green economy. And that was the, and it was the only one in the UK that did specialise in investments in the green economy. It specialised in the sectors that I I knew a lot about. It specialised in energy deals. It specialised in uh, water management deals. It specialised in uh, transport, waste and recycling. So it specialised in specifically the things that I'd spent the last ten years managing and and enabling the applied research in. Uh, and its purpose was to actually bring those to market rather than watch those innovations just wither on the vine. Uh, and so that's how I got into venture capital. OK, excellent.
0: And uh, you sort of hinted there at what, Grange, what Green Angel Syndicate started as. How has that evolved over the last sort of half decade or eight years of
1: well, it, yes, yes. I mean, it 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 did well right from the start. It caught the eye, and a lot of entrepreneurs came came to it with their with their deals, asking for investment. Uh, it also caught the eye of potential investors, uh, and the membership grew. It was difficult though because I I was doing another job, uh, and so it 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 was it initially developed slowly. It then I then really relaunched it and decided to concentrate on it in 2017, and it was then that it really took off. And that really s- coincided with a, sh- a big shift in climate change. You may or may not remember, climate change um, went through a, a boom period from 2006-7. Al Gore, as I said, and Nicholas Stern. And politicians got behind it and subsidies were given. Then 2011, 2012, the plug was pulled on it, and both uh, George Osborne in the UK and uh, Alan Greenspan in the US uh, started to withdraw the subsidies and brief against climate change. They started to to say this isn't this isn't critical, renewable energy isn't mission critical. We've got to get other parts of the economy working much better. We can ignore this, uh, and that led to an absolute all-time low. When uh, the president of the United States was, became someone who uh, actively did not believe in climate change and was supporting a coal economy, and that wasn't—that was 2016, when Donald Trump started his four years. By that time, it had started to become obvious that climate change really wasn't. And the 2018 IPCC report, followed by the 2019 intergovernmental report uh, on biodiversity, were absolutely shocking in explaining how serious a problem climate change has become, uh, way beyond anything that was felt, uh, was believed to be the case in, in 2015 at the Paris COP. And that affected Green Angel Syndicate's development. Uh, And we started explicitly saying we were the only angel syndicate in the UK specialising in the fight against climate change. And we found that it it just grew faster and faster and faster. Uh, And the remarkable thing uh, in the pandemic was that actually it grew faster still when the economy and so many other sectors closed down. Uh, And so the last year and a half have seen even more spectacular growth.
0: Yeah. Uh, So that kind of leads us on to the theme of of what we were going to speak about today, which is kind of how angels can invest and I guess general investors can invest in impact and actually make a difference. And it's perhaps worth talking a little bit about something that probably most people know about, which is basically how investing in a small startup can actually have an impact financially and in global terms, because I think there's a worry that you can invest in a lot of little companies that remain little companies and don't do anything.
1: Yes, um, that certainly is an an obvious problem. Uh, Investment in startup and early stage companies is very high risk, uh, and the failure rate of startup and early stage companies is very high. Uh, Angel syndicates traditionally have been rather hobbyist They've been populated by uh, elderly, retired businessmen with um, a lot of money in their back pocket. But more importantly, a wish to kind of get involved and go and see aspiring young entrepreneurs and, and maybe get a little bit involved and tell them what to do. And and, and it's, it's, it's hobbyist. We are the absolute opposite. In many ways, we're not there to help our members make money. We are there to help our members help put the problems that that they and we and the whole world is facing right. In doing that, they will make money. There is something that is profoundly misunderstood, there is this misapprehension that uh, there is a trade off between actually investing in something that's that's going to do good and profit and that investing in something that is going to do good is perilously close to philanthropy nothing could be further from the truth the the reality that mark carney al gore the the uh, really progressive investment sec- financial sector have all recognized and stated and that is that the the climate change represents the biggest investment opportunity in history and there is a very simple reason for that the reason is that in order to fight climate change uh, and let's be clear if we don't fight climate change the human race is facing an overwhelming problems which mean that anything else will become unimportant in fighting climate change we are obliged to transition the entire global economy sector by sector by sector ge- geography by geography by geography from a hydrocarbon basis to a non-hydrocarbon basis what that means is an extraordinary range of engineering innovation, process innovation, technology innovation. An extraordinary range because it's got to cover everything we do, everything that all the clothes you're wearing, the kit that you're using, the uh, the objects around around you in your house have been produced on a, using hydrocarbons. In future, they've got to be used. They've got to be produced not using hydrocarbons, using other things delivering them in, 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 in other ways. What that requires is an absolutely granular development of innovations that, at the tiniest level, make changes that uh, allow, allow that transition and that then integrate with more innovations and more innovations and more innovations to generate a systemic change. Cannot happen from above. It cannot work by saying, "Okay, we've all got to transfer to renewable energy." So, Scottish and Southern Energy now you've got to just you've just got got to have a lot of wind farms. Even with wind energy, which is now quite mature, there are more innovations that are needed to make wind energy effective and efficient. The the, when, although I say it's mature we are just starting to reach the 25 year uh, review point. All the original wind farms, the very first wind farms are now coming up to 25 years old. And when they were put in, they were given a 25 year lifespan. So that kit, all the technology in the original wind farms, which in any case has now been improved on hugely, is, is now coming up for review. The failure rate, of the, the original wind farm technology has been enormous. In other words, there is there are very few wind technologies that were put in place 25 years ago that haven't failed between now and then. And there are one or two that are still there uh, 25 years later and have lasted the course, but most of them haven't. And what's happened is that actually all of these innovations have come in from small companies that have developed them uh, they've proved they work and they have then been adopted. That's why it's a huge investment opportunity at the startup early stage level because innovation of the kind that we need can only come from entre- independent entrepreneurs. The the multinationals and the corporates can never generate that kind of uh, in- in- innovation. What they can do and what is going to happen.
0: Yes, is, that, is that to some extent... Because you've got the entrepreneur's dilemma in terms of they're not capable of doing enough innovation, or as corporates, they're kind of invested in the status quo, and the incentive to change the status quo is not as strong as it might be?
1: The latter. You've, you, you've hit it in one. Businesses are organic entities, and their lifeblood is continuing to do what they, they, they do. And so if you're running a business with a turnover of, of multi-millions, you look at that and you say those multi-millions are only going to be generated next year in the way they have been this year, if the bulk of what we do remains the same. Uh, and so they are, their entire life system is predicated on a lack of radical change. Uh, so um, innovation, although they are capable of innovation, they will never innovate far from where they are, at, where they are at the moment. Uh, whereas the authentic entrepreneur who is looking to invent and innovate in, in in some way that will change what we do is completely free. And that freedom, that complete lack of cons- the constraints imposed by an existing corporate structure allow them to do whatever they want. And that's what generates the real breakthroughs. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So th- this naturally leads on to a question – in terms of finding the right companies, you know, it's fine saying these things exist, but you have to find the right company. And I'm thinking particularly, you do have this. You know, I know you say, you know, if they save the environment, in a sense, they'll they'll generate profit. But you still need to make sure that both of those things are going to happen in your investments. How do you find the right companies and then decide this is what's key? <laughs>
1: I mean that, that that's an absolutely critical critical question, and is 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 the uh, measure of our success. And ultimately, the measure of our success is the, the amount of carbon emissions reduced by our portfolio of companies, along with their financial success, and the two go together. Uh, how do we find them? The the way that we have found them since I set it up in 2013, that essentially applies now and i'm hesitating because we are in uh, the process of making changes about this which i'll come on to has been uh, that they come to us we're 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 very visible because we're the only people doing what we do uh, entrepreneurs who are working in the area that we're working in find us and there are lots of them you know if if the great inventors Watts, stevenson uh, Whittle, we're working now they'd be working in climate change because that's where, that's where the money is that's where the future is that's where the excitement is so there are lots of them uh, and if they're in the uk looking for angel funding then they find us they we come up first on google we have been the trade associations angel syndicate of the year we're recommended by anybody who knows about angel investing to those people who are working in, in the areas we like to invest in. Uh, so they come to us and we're swamped. We have, this year we'll have over a thousand, it's been sort of more than two or three a day coming to us. And given that we'll probably end up only making 10 new investments, where you can see we're turning them away in the hundreds. So so in a, the answer to your question about how we find them up until now is that they come to us, we don't go looking, and what what we've put in place, is uh, a selection process, a filtering process by which we use our specialist knowledge, which is the absolute key to what we're doing, the specialist knowledge that we've got about the markets that we invest in to gauge whether or not we think they're going to be successful. And it's that specialist knowledge that determines whether we'll take them through the process whether we'll take them into due diligence and whether in the end we'll complete an investment i should stress that there are sectors that we don't look at 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 all because we have no specialist knowledge so we we don't look at fashion even though fashion is crucial to the fight against climate change nor do we look at fmcg again crucial to the, the fight against climate change but we just don't have the specialist skills there. So we'd be like any other angel syndicate, we'd be guessing and that just completely defeats the purposes on which we've been set up. So now, the way in which we're changing is that we recognise and know that there are certain areas that are more important than others. Uh, there are certain priorities. So one of the priorities, for example, is hydrogen. The single biggest problem in the UK is our gas boilers, uh, which are, in, uh, are, are, are the single biggest Carbon emitter in the UK after transport, but then once you you break transport down, gas boilers then are for residential and commercial heat uh, are the biggest problem. And the need to generate the innovations that are going to make an alternative possible is huge. Hydrogen is is, is starting to come on leaps and bounds. But again, it needs granular innovation. So everyone says, hydrogen, oh, it's got to be hydrogen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's got to be hydrogen? How can it be hydrogen? How can you tra- transition from a heating system in houses which use use gas uh, or, or, or conventional gas uh, and have boilers and the infrastructure set up to, to function mm. with that to something that works using hydrogen? And how do you generate the hydrogen? Where do you get it from? So on and so forth. It's a whole series of innovations. As I say, granular innovations that link together to, to enable this. Now, what should we do? And we haven't, I haven't got an answer to this, but but this is one of the things that we're, we're racking our brains about right now. How should we stimulate the innovations that are needed to make hydrogen work? And of course, one of the things we're considering is putting it up on our website and saying, step, step forward with hydrogen solutions, because this is what we really want to look at now. So that's it's
0: it's, it's changing mm-hmm. a bit for right. us. So 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 this is one of the questions that I think a lot of people ask in terms of impact. So here you're sort of saying in the hydra example, we want something in hydron. Do you sort of work on the base of impact a little bit of we know it when we see it, this is something that comes along, we think this is a critical thing in technology? Or do you actually have some sort of measurement process where you say, well, if this happens or if this works, we save X amount of carbon or whatever? Um, the latter.
1: It's a measurement process. So we don't look at them if, then, if they are not uh, capable once they start trading or are already uh, reducing carbon emissions or other greenhouse gas emissions and or removing carbon from the atmosphere. Right.
0: And do you have a specific target for that, or is that just a case of so long as they bring it down, that's OK? We don't have a target as such. Uh, I mean,
1: if, if the uh, impact that they're going to make is, is, is minimal, you know, they are going to, but it's going to be really almost irrelevant, then, then we don't look. But that's a judgment call. It's not a number. We do measure the number and we measure our portfolio uh, on the basis uh, of um, the carbon emissions uh, saving. uh, um, It's it's the reality. So at the moment, we're sitting at a level which is the equivalent of removing 18,000 cars from the road for a year. Uh, and that means it's tiny, absolutely minute. Uh, but that incl- we've got 28 companies in the portfolio. And of those, at least half are not, are not yet trading. So, so that is if the figure is already growing exponentially. But we-, we um, So that expect- is the current figure
0: for what your portfolio is doing. But you have a vision on you know, 18,000 cars. That would be 180,000 cars or
1: whatever, hopefully. In- <laughs> That's right. It, 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 absolutely. Exactly that, and it it is in a it is as simple as that. It's not simple to to measure because you the companies aren't you know you're measuring apples and oranges and so on. It's it's, it's not easy to measure, but it is simple to state once you. have gone through the complexity of
0: the measurement yeah and to what extent you meant you mentioned about lots of key technologies um, that have to or innovations have to come together presumably to some extent there some of these are ordered and that some things need to happen before something else will work yeah how much can you take, take account of that in terms of you know if you see something that's okay that's going to be essential but we need three other things for it to happen first is a case of you just say sorry not just now or
1: yes. have you look at that Yes, I mean absolutely if it's premature or overambitious or r- relating to a demand that doesn't exist, that's that's probably the critical the, the critical framework, the critical judgment. So I, with my marketing and sales background, often say to companies that come to us, look, If you can't sell it, you can't succeed. Show us how you're going to sell it. Sell it to us. Sell your your equity to us. Convince us that this is going to be a good deal. And part of convincing us that this is going to be a good deal is you've, you've got to convince us that you already have or are going to get traction out there in the market where they're going to want to buy your products or services. And if they can't demonstrate how they can successfully engage with the market and uh, either satisfy existing demand or generate new demand, then that the company is not going to succeed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that actually leads on to ty- thinking about time scales, because I know if you're investing in angel stage companies or new technologies, these can take a long time to, you know, finalise the technology, commercialise, get you know, and then get the scale up, gain traction. You spoke about the urgency of what of, of of sorting out our climate issues. At what point do, does is the timescale just not quite working?
1: Of, of, of course, I mean you're touching on something that we we talk about a lot, uh, uh, and at this point it's it's uh, cause for acute sensitivity um so so accepted wisdom in the angel syndicate investment world is as all or as you and all your listeners will know is that investment is both enormously high risk uh, and is also going to take seven to ten years before any return is made during which you won't get a dividend or anything like that because the company is growing and still not uh, yet quite possibly it's still not yet even breaking even so um you wave goodbye to your money Maybe forever, uh, but 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 certainly for uh, a chunk of years, and you've got to be ready to do that. Patient capital, it gets called. Now, whilst respecting and understanding the reasons why the angel investment landscape isn't has has been like that, where we we're neither satisfied with that as a context, nor are we prepared to uh, just settle back for that. And the reason is simple: if you discover a technology that is going to make a difference in the fight against climate change uh, in your r d lab today it needs to scale up tomorrow because because that's when climate change is happening it's happening today and tomorrow it's not good enough to say well yes okay if we follow a careful development plan we will be in a position to really launch this technology and see it grow in seven to ten years time In 7 to 10 years' time, the world will already be beyond plus 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, and the the catastrophes being faced by the human race in in chunks of the globe will already be with us. Uh, It has to happen now. The good sign, and the reason why we say what I've just said to you with some confidence, is that there is every reason to believe that the multinationals and the corporates are are already to scale up technologies when they see they're working and to do it quickly. So, so last year, um, two charge point protocol companies, both of which were startups, neither of which I'm sorry to say we invested in, at least one of which we were offered, but I think we turned it down because its valuation was too high. One of them was bought by Shell and the other one was bought by Angie, the French energy company. Shell are uh, rolling it out through their garage floor courts. Angie I'm I, I'm not certain about this I haven't seen the evidence uh, but they we believe uh, bought it so they could roll it out through their domestic uh, their domestic customers their domestic residential customers and the beauty of that is recognizing how companies which had only existed for a couple of years have moved from being startups their technology has been moved from being startup experimental to being universally applied Um, and that's, it's that kind of thing that needs to happen. And we are relatively sure that in the sectors we operate in, so energy, water, food, and agriculture, waste and recycling, the the big companies are actually, they're they're ready to adopt technology at a rate and a scale that Mm -hmm. they never ever would have been without climate change.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting because you do have the schizophrenic attitude. I mean, you mentioned Shell and I saw somebody, you know, I saw a headline from the recently saying, oh, we need to keep pumping oil to fund the change. And I was like, mm, I'm not entirely convinced by that as a, as a philosophy. And we mentioned about a lot of multinationals dragging their heels and the status quo. Presumably, there is a point where they'll say the status quo is not sustainable. They're already investing in relative you know, even shells, as you say, investing in what well, for them is a relatively small way, but they are investing in this. You know, when does the tipping point come? Because presumably, at some point, it must be so compelling the multinationals will go, "Oh yeah, well, actually, yeah, now, now we need to do it."
1: I, I, I think this is uh, a, a very um, painful question because I think if you listen to the scientists, and most famously David Attenborough. Produced um, a program about six months ago, where he used exactly that concept—the concept of the tipping point—and he, I, I, if memory serves me correctly, he identified nine areas related to the impacts of climate change, in 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 which disaster was looming, uh, and in at least four of them, he said we have already passed. Tipping point, and that is extraordinarily alarming. And the the he spelled it out. He said, "I'm here. I'm talking here about the conditions under which human life is possible. So, uh, as we pass these tipping points, what we're doing is making human life impossible. And if we pass all nine tipping points, uh, there is a mathematical certainty that we will not survive. Uh, and 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 that." sadly is something that cop26 and the politicians fluffed they shirked uh, in spite of the um the very the very frank warnings that they were faced with the political world still has not yet accepted that, that climate change is a clear and present danger as a result nor has the business world the business world will only react to rules laid down by the political world until those rules are laid down by the political world, it'll carry on operating by the rules that prevail. The political world is, I think, to blame. Uh, I think they are reprehensible. It, it
0: is—it's—it's it's tough in the sense if you think about election cycles. is kind as several people point out that climate change or climate change is a problem that's almost designed to circumvent the systems of governments we have in place, you know, anyone whose election process is five years or seven years, they're gone politically and possibly even in terms of life by the time this thing hits.
1: I I think that's right. Although, look at Storm Arwen, you know, go say that to the people in in Northumberland and the northwest of Scotland. Their failure is a failure to understand that clear and present danger, that it is a clear and present danger now. That is their failure. Uh, And they failed to understand it in spite of Storm Arwen, in spite of uh, the wildfires in California, in spite of the wildfires in Australia. The politicians still don't register it as a clear and present danger. I think you're exactly right. The reason why they don't is because they know that their electorate doesn't. And you might, if you were caught up in Strauss small Darwin, you might be saying, this is really serious, not only because it's mucked me up now, but because uh, as a consequence of, of what's happening with the change in the climate, it might happen again to me. And so those people might be alarmed, but there aren't enough of them, and there, are, there aren't enough of them who've lost their homes in California and North Australia and so on, to actually change the electorate. And the electorate and the media see climate change as not a clear and present danger, unlike COVID-19. We saw when the politicians see a clear and present danger, as they did in 2020 with COVID-19, as they did in 1939 with Adolf Hitler, as they did in 1914 with the start of the First World War, when they see a clear and present danger, we well know that the politicians can turn the national economy of every country in the world on a sixpence. They can stop it. They can stop it and replace it with other things. You know, By 1940, the British economy was transferred from a whole set of industries that had been operating uh, before the start of the war to a whole set of different industries. They were all working, but they were doing different things. They were all earning, but they were earning in for different products. Uh, and um, that's what governments can do. It's what politicians are there to do the problem is that they don't see it as a clear and present danger and they are they are beyond blameworthy in my view because they've been ignoring it as a clear and present danger for 30 years and here we are facing real severe problems and they're still ignoring them Uh, and that's hard to believe in 2022 carbon emissions globally will be greater than they were in 2021 that's how much COP26 failed. In 2023, by which time we've all had COP27, carbon emissions will be greater than they were in 2022. China, which is the um, single now the single biggest emitter of carbon, will not reach peak emissions until 2028 at the earliest and, and probably not then. You know, it's, this is going to get this is going, not just going to get worse, it's going to get much worse. Before it gets better, at what point do the politicians say, "Wow, we've got to take this seriously"? We can't. We now need to stop producing agreements which are trade-offs and compromises between one. We'll do a bit of this, but but we'll do a bit of that as well. We'll allow this. We'll allow the well, we'll allow the oil and gas companies to carry on in the way that they have done. You know. At what point will the politicians change, change their minds? I don't know the answer to
0: that. I think it's tough. I mean, certainly, I one thing I think about a little bit is pensions. So with my former actuarial hat on, I, I, I know a little bit about pensions. And we've had this problem about people living longer for a long time and governments not being willing to address state pension ages. So they've waited until it's just so late that people you know, the, the, the changes have affected people badly and have got objections. And they've sort of, you know, and, it, and they'd left it until they, could, until they couldn't ignore it. Whereas if someone addressed it a decade earlier, they could have done easier changes. Mm. It would have been easier for everybody. And I see a lot of analogies to that in, in this much worse crisis. Something that occurred to me as you were speaking there, to what extent do the investments you make or of what extent are, are the investments you make contingent on, at some point, the government turning around and
1: going, well,
0: actually, we need to do something, or we need to do more?
1: I, I mean, that's a, that's a very interesting question that nobody's ever asked me. Curiously, not really. Uh, so, in other words, the, the the investments we're making are in practical interventions. They're, they're, they're in tech, the majority of them are in technology. And it doesn't need me to to tell you that of course when you're dealing with technology you're dealing with something that's demonstrable uh, and so in, in in essence subject to what i said earlier about the d- demand and being able to sell it so so subject to there being genuinely a market for it the technologies that they're developing will will succeed regardless of what the government does so for example we saw a wonderful company last week which i hope we will end up by in- investing in that is all about battery improvement for electric vehicles uh, lots of people working on that and i think this one is a potentially a winner now that doesn't need anything at all from the government that's that there are going to be people who are going to make money out of uh, electric vehicle battery improvements come what may uh, and the the, the the question is, who are they, uh, and whether whether we've got the right, the right one here or not. Uh, and a lot of the deals that we invest in are like that, where they're not waiting for government to change policy or to make adjustments that enable the company's technologies to to be accepted. They're, they're going to work because they're going to work.
0: So, one thing that also occur, another thing that occurred to me is that as a forming, former advertising person, I'd be interested about your thoughts on some language because we've used the term climate change. And we know that climate change is a term that is invented by PR people, basically, who for oil or coal industry to sort of say, try and make the crisis seem somehow less benign. Climate change doesn't sound like a crisis. And I do wonder at some, sometimes if the environmental cause, if you like, has lost the language battle. How do you see that?
1: I, completely. I, I mean, this is, I, I, I said at the beginning that i would come back to the importance of communication. A critical aspect of the failure of the world to grapple with a problem that it, it has known has been coming for it for 30 years is the, the failure of communication. In back in 2000, I gave talks. Um, shortly after setting up IRRI. I would talk at conferences that I was invited to uh, about the mangling of the English language in the terms of reference of sustainable sustainable development, which was the dominant theme. Starting with the name itself, uh, sustainable development. What does that mean? You know, there were conferences in back in those days. There were conferences devoted to the topic of what does sustainable development mean? That's how bad it was. The Rio Earth Summit in 1992 was when sustainable development was officially sanctioned, having been invented in 1988 by the wonderful Brundtland, um, who was the first female prime minister of Norway. She, of course, English is not her first language. She can't be blamed. But the Rio Earth Summit, where the world's leaders, uh, which was the forerunner of the cops in many ways, the world leaders gathered, Nelson Mandela, Bill Clinton, John Major, they were all there. Uh, And they all committed to sustainable development. None of them really understood what it meant and so it translated into something that was called Agenda 21, which was 21 motherhood statements, and that translated into Local Agenda 21. And what was said was, look, down to a council level, it was a local authority level, so it went from national government to, to regional authority to local authority. You work out what your Local Agenda 21 is. Of course, nobody had a clue. And so the speeches I gave when I had started to get involved with this was that we're we're dealing with linguistic blamange. Language is given to us to share with one another in a way that allows us to reflect a common reality. If you start to mess up language, you, you lose the ability to do that. If you lose the ability to do that, it becomes difficult to act together to do anything. Because you don't really, essentially, at the end of the day, you don't really know what you're talking about. I may know what I'm talking about, but I don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that's part of the problem in the US in particular at the moment, where they've lost a common frame of reference. Absolutely. So
1: um, that was sustainable development and why I never, ever used the terms. What I set up was International Resources and Recycling Institute. Which of those words don't you understand? which, if I go out in the street, which of those words which will ordinary people not understand? They'll understand all of them. With the transition to climate change, I thought, well, this is an improvement because people do understand climate change. The problem with climate change was, back then, it was a prediction. And that's why Donald Trump as late as 2016, still didn't believe in it. He thought that this was nonsense. It was possible to argue, and, and in 2012, 2011, 2012, George Osborne and Alan Greenspan did argue. Uh, and so I always said, we, there's no point in talking about that. That just mo- shifts you into something where you're not going to get universal acceptance. Whereas if you talk about the green economy, you will. I then changed the narrative yet again to climate change once the 2018-2019 reports had happened where it had become unarguable. Climate change is with us. It's not a prediction, it's here now. Now, since particularly since 2018-2019, but before then as well, language again has been incredibly important. And one of the reasons why the the progress has been so slow in solving the problems of climate change is because of the business world particularly and the politicians as well uh, and the investment community which i represent hide behind acronyms like esg and terms like impact and sustainability that old hoary old favorite is still in there and they talk about sustainability investing esg investing impact investing once again using language to blur we talk about climate change investment for the, um in the fight against climate change and we define that as relating to the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere which is what controls the temperature and the temperature of the globe is what controls the climate how long did it take me to explain that to you less than 30 seconds whereas if we were investing in esg I'd be, I don't know, it would take me 20, 30 minutes to explain. And still, at the end of all of that, you might think I mean something about ESG, which is not what you mean. Uh, And other people listening to this podcast might think the same thing. Nobody can fail to understand what I've just said about carbon in the atmosphere. They might not like it. Donald Trump might still disagree with it and say the scientists are completely wrong in correlating carbon concentrations in the atmosphere to climate. But He would be disagreeing with all the scientists in the world. There is now not a scientist in the world that does not accept the correlation between carbon concentrations in the atmosphere, global temperature and climate. And that means once again... I'm still standing up like a prophet in the wilderness saying, for heaven's sake, start to use language in the way that helps us, rather than the way that blocks us. Don't allow the corporates and the multinationals and the big investment houses to hide behind ESG. And that is absolutely what they do, you know, you get ESG funds that do invest in oil and gas. And when you challenge them, they say, well, they score very highly on uh, governance. Mm -hmm.
0: One of the debates I see a lot of is disinvestment versus engagement, and yes. uh, and I've I've been on conference calls, well not webinars, where I've seen big investors say, well we cannot meet our sort of or the, the 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 mandate of our investors without investing across sort of things that are not you know across oil, for example. And that, that's tough, because then they're between a rock and a hard place. But, yeah, they do hide behind it a little bit.
1: Yes, I think so. Oh, yes, disinvestment is, 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 a, is a challenge. I mean, as a, the whole stranded assets problem for the oil and gas industry, there are, there are lots and lots of problems, but there are lots and lots of opportunities. Uh, and what we should be doing is really getting behind the opportunities and using the opportunities as means of solving the problems.
0: Well, on that positive note, I shall move on to our standard questions. So I'll throw these at you, and we'll get your brief answers on what you think about them. What was the most recent publicly announced investment you made, and why did you make it?
1: Ah, Yes, I should have that at my fingertips. We've invested in a second round of Buy Me Once, uh, and Buy Me Once is uh, is actually a retail company. It's 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 an unusual one in our portfolio, and as its name suggests, it's all about durability. It's all about buying goods which will last, uh, and they cover a range of uh, different sectors right now, uh, which they're wanting to increase. They want really to be the Amazon of. Climate change retailing, which is a which is a big ambition, uh, but they are ambitious, and that's one of the reasons why we invest. We thought they're doing a really really good thing. We do, although we don't like FMCG, we do understand the sector of retailing and marketing that they're in uh, and how they're trying to uh, break break the mould, and we like that an awful lot. Mm-hmm. Good. So,
0: in the classic venture capital triumvirate of market, products, and management. Everyone knows are important, but which one do you think is the most important when you're investing? I,
1: I, I think, um, I mean, everybody says it's management and I I find it hard to disagree with that. The point is if you have the right management, uh, you, they will be able to, they will really be able to get to grips with the and product. I do really hold by what I've said already if you can't sell it, you can't succeed. Uh, and, of course, that is a function of management. If you've got the right management, then they'll be able to sell it. If you've got the wrong management, then they won't be able to sell mm. it.
0: Okay. So tell us about a time you failed and what
1: did you learn from it? <laughs> um, in the early days I'm, – I'm, I'm, I'm going to blow our trumpet a little bit here before I answer the question, Brian – since relaunching in 2017, we have made 28 investments. So 28 companies in our portfolio, not one has failed. And that is a record, a proud record. Because we're purpose driven, it's more than a proud record. It's something that is very, we're passionate about. We cannot fail. A failure is, I know a company will fail, but um, failure will be very, very bad for us. However, in our earlier life, in the period from 2013 to 2017, they, we made six investments and three of them failed. Perhaps the most painful, the most acutely painful uh, was a wonderful company called Catalysis Systems that had invented um, a perfect catalyst for a photocatalyst, And it was a perfect catalyst. The perfect catalyst is something that heals itself. So you, you don't have to replace the catalyst after use. Uh, and this was to treat industrial wastewater, and it, it really was brilliant. It was it was a wonderful management team that had already got to grips with getting traction internationally. They'd got potential customers in India, in Oman, in Africa, in Northern Ireland, the biggest, uh, very large paper company in Northern Ireland, uh, and there was a, a wonderful um, bottle fixing company, Crown in. Uh, England. In, I'm not sure it's England or Scotland. That was interesting, and they were all ready to buy once catalyst systems had shown how the company could scale up from the lab to an industrial scale. It couldn't, and when they tried, they tried on a demonstrator, tried on a demonstrator, and tried. Uh, and there was one molecular reaction that that blocked the um, catalyzing process uh that had not been a problem in the lab and the the cruel lesson that taught us and very cruel it was too is to um try to avoid the danger of investing too early if if the technology is at technology readiness level three four five it's, it's a little it's still in the lab it's a little bit too risky and so that really put us off those very early stage investments. But it, boy, was it sad because the company had done an enormous amount. Yes.
0: No. Yeah, you do feel sorry for people who spent years on something and then it does go go wrong.
1: No, no it was it was harrowing. They would even they had a wonderful managing director. They'd moved the company from Aberdeen, where it, it had come out of um, Robert Gordon, I think. They were in the univer there was one, one great university in um, Aberdeen, but Scotland, uh, up in Aberdeen, it's Scottish enterprise, I think it's not Highlands and Islands enterprise, we couldn't give them the incentives they needed to, to start to develop the company. They moved down to Middlesbrough of all places because the, the regional uh, economic development agency there really incentivized them well. Uh, and so the poor Scottish team, up sticks from Aberdeen and its beautiful surroundings to go down to Middlesbrough. And I've got nothing against Middlesbrough, but it's, it's it's not like the highlands of Scotland, is it?
0: It's not scenic in the way <laughs> that, that you might say the D-side is. No, quite. Right, that's
1: one way of putting it.
0: As As listeners know, I'm an avid reader and Christmas is coming. So are there any books that you like and would recommend for reading?
1: I'm going to be shameless about this. Angels, dragons, and vultures. Angels, dragons, and vultures is a wonderful introduction to angel investment, written by my co-founder of the second version of Green Angel Syndicate, Simon Ackland. Simon is a, a really long-standing professional angel investor. He did. 10 or 20 years running, actually running a fund management company called Cuesta, which he sold in 2007, 2008, it was in 2007, I think, before the financial crash. And since then, he has been concentrating on angel investment. And he then really wrote, he wrote the book, he wrote the, the, the Bible. And I would urge all of your listeners to get onto Amazon, buy Angels, Dragons and Vultures, Simon Ackland, A-C-L-A-N-D. We'll put a link uh, in the
0: show notes so people can find it. <laughs> That's the book. Christmas presents for everyone
1: there. <laughs> yes.
0: What do you wish you knew when you started looking at venture capital that you know
1: now? Uh, well, well, I, I mean, in, in many ways, you were asking me a question that I was able to act on, because in, in 2017, when I relaunched it, I was able to correct all the things that I didn't really know in 20, 2013. Two things really stand out. One was that I set it up as a company limited by guarantee, having no share capital, with the idea that it would be sort of owned by its members. You know, that's a a company, I don't have to tell you or your listeners, company limited by guarantee is is very much the structure for for sports clubs and clubs. Uh, So I thought, well, this is an investment club, so that'll work. It, It was foolish because actually what... Green Angel Syndicate is and angel syndicates are, is high-value service sector companies. They're selling unusually a service to two sides, two opposite sides of a of a transaction, to the investors who are going to invest and to the entrepreneurs who want the investment. And syndicates are selling a service to both sides. So it, it is much better suited to being a, a, a company uh, limited by shares. Now, part and parcel of that was that in a way I was cheating. So I believed I could cut corners. And, and for the first four years, we never had pitch events, for example. I, I kind of did it all on the end of the phone. You know, I said, I, I, not the companies. So I'd go and visit the companies and I'd do due diligence on the companies. It was very much led by me. Yeah, very much operated by me. And getting the members was comparatively easy through f- friends, really. And one particular friend became a partner in it, who was a, a rich entrepreneur himself. And so the second part of the lesson that I learned, which rather went with setting it up as a club, was that there's no substitute for doing it properly and that I had to actually build it up into a properly marketed and distinctive, you know, I had to do all the things that, you, that we want our entrepreneurs to do in building their business. I had to do in building Green Angel Syndicate, I was in exactly the same position as they were. And so we had a fundraiser. we actually sold equity in 2017. And again, we had another round in 2020, prior to launching our EIS fund, which is now going strong. And um, that put me through put me through my paces in doing the thing that very thing that entrepreneurs are coming to us trying to do. Uh, And it also um, gave us a war chest to start paying for the activities we needed to do, and in fact it also gave gave us a team, a team of people who were invested in the business of Green Angel Syndicate itself who wanted to help, and they very much formed then and form now the core of the management team.
0: All sounds like you you, you have learned your lesson as you say in <laughs> <laughs> I learned those lessons them yes. So if anyone wants to find out more about what Green Angel Syndicate is doing, where should they go? Come to me.
1: So nick at greenangelsyndicate.com or go to the website, uh, which is greenangelsyndicate.com. And we'll post both both of those in show notes again. Yep. And if they don't particularly want to come to me, but they know they want to join, they'll find a join now button on the homepage of the website if they want to invest in the fund which is very much for passive investors but investing in the same things then they can f- they can access all of the fund um, the fund links again on the homepage of the website
0: so thank you very much for coming today Nick. i could chat with you for ages at all these topics so we could <laughs> easily do another hour but thank you very much for your time today
1: Brian, it's a real pleasure. I've very much enjoyed it.
0: Thank you. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at com forward slash podcast. If you like really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.